Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to GPs Dr Becky Ackroyd and Dr Catherine Bell about neurodiversity in the medical profession and what general practice can do to better support doctors and other staff who are neurodivergent. Becky is the GP lead for Autistic Doctors International, a support and advocacy organisation. And until recently, Catherine was an Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Fellow for Derbyshire's GP Task Force, focusing on supporting neurodivergent staff working in general practice. In this conversation, both Becky and Catherine talk about their own experiences of being neurodivergent, the challenges neurodivergent doctors can face, including stigma, and why it's so important that we frame neurodiversity positively and focus on what people can do rather than what they can't. Becky and Catherine also have lots of practical advice for practices on how they can support neurodivergent staff and advice for anyone listening who may be neurodivergent about how to approach conversation with your employers and places to get additional support. We've linked some of those resources in the description for this episode. This is a really fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast now by Dr. Catherine Bell and Dr. Becky Ackroyd to talk about neurodiversity in the medical profession and general practice. Catherine is a GP and a GP trainer in the East Midlands. Becky's a GP in East Sussex and GP lead for Autistic Doctors International, a peer support and advocacy organisation. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So Catherine, if we start with you, you're involved with the GP task force in Derbyshire looking at issues around neurodiversity. What does that role actually involve? So it was a 12-month fellowship that I did with the GP Task Force Derbyshire, who are now, I've merged with another organisation and now called The Hub Plus, I believe. It was advertised as a equality, diversity and inclusion fellowship, looking specifically at neurodivergence in general practice staff. So a lot of the focus of the work I did was around doctors and GPs and GP trainees, but it could also include the practice staff in general. And really, it was just looking at improving the well-being of this group of people, allowing them to thrive in the workplace, looking at how best to support them and any kind of adaptation. So it was a very wide brief and I could just kind of go with whichever direction I thought was most helpful. And I tended to focus on raising awareness. So a lot of the stuff I did was around just raising that profile of the fact that there are neurodivergent doctors and what that might mean and how that might impact them in practice. How did you get interested in issues around neurodiversity? So it was a bit of a a personal journey, really. I think professionally, I've always skirted around the kind of issues that affect neurodivergent people in terms of my interests and my career interests. So from when I did my medical student elective, I was doing adolescent health, eating disorders, substance abuse. I was really interested in those areas and I've very much had an interest in mental health issues as I've progressed During lockdown and COVID, I really started noticing and learning more about my own potential neurodivergent traits and those of family members and kind of it really increased my own personal awareness and I started doing a lot of reading and research around it. By the time that the advert for the fellowship came out, I'd just been to my own GP about an ADHD referral. So it just seemed like a good timing, really, that I was doing all this research already. And here was this role where I could really put it to use and hopefully help other people. It was from there. And so, Becky, you're the GP lead for Autistic Doctors International. Why did you get involved with that group and what does your organisation do? 
So if I start with the organisation, we are now over 700 members, all autistic, self-diagnosed or diagnosed formally, all holding a medical degree. Not everybody is still practising medicine necessarily. I'd been unwell and in that time I'd joined Twitter and had found lots of really good mental health support and started connecting with all these people. And I was starting a new job and Mary Doherty, the founder of Autistic Doctors International, and I were in communication on Twitter. I was exploring my own autistic identity at that time, just kind of got involved and connected at that stage. At that time, it was very small. And then we have grown really rapidly over the last few years. So since 2019, when it was first founded through to today, was more involved more and more into the leadership team. Both of you are neurodivergent. I mean, how has that affected each of you in your careers? I don't have any formal diagnosis of any neurodivergent condition. So I am on a very long NHS waiting list for my ADHD assessment. And I very much identify with the traits of dyspraxia as well. And there's often a like co-occurrence of these sorts of features in individuals. And I think it's been that I know over time things that I find difficult. And obviously being qualified, um, you have a lot more control over your working environment and your working pattern. And it's kind of evolved over time that I know what works for me. I think in terms of my dyspraxic traits, I trained to do things like subdermal contraceptive implants, which was the only technical procedure that I'd ever really trained to do and gave it up very quickly because it was causing me so much anxiety. It's just the kind of sequence of events and remembering everything in order and actually the dexterity of doing those sorts of procedures means that I don't do any kind of technical procedures, joint injections, anything like that now because I know that it causes me too much mental effort and too much anxiety to do those. And So I've obviously adapted in that respect. Um, And things like my working pattern, I work alternate days in clinical practice that happened to be mirroring a colleague of mine who I was covering her maternity locum, who subsequently was diagnosed as autistic herself. And she'd always said how what a great working pattern that was to have that day off in between. And yeah, I found it really worked well for me and I've kept that up. Yeah, there's been lots of little things along the way that I've realised have worked well for me, but I've never linked that to neurodivergence until more recently. Oh, that's really interesting. And Becky, what about you? My diagnosis both, again, came um, after graduation, um, although there had definitely been um, jokes and hints before that. But it is very much my neurodivergent traits that have steered me into general practice. I took a very circuitous route to get there. I did my foundation programme and then trained uh, as a core medical trainee with the intention of going into palliative medicine. Um, I spent a couple of years working in a hospice. Um, I had really despaired about training. I was struggling with the hospital environment, um, but then the hospice wasn't fine, uh, giving me enough variation and I was getting bored. So I came back into the hospital medicine um, and then was off for the period I mentioned um, with a combination of burnout, um, poor mental health. And it was during that time that I Uh, was diagnosed first as autistic and then um, started to reevaluate and realised that actually general practice had lots of attractive features that would work well for me. Um, There's enough variety that I don't get bored, so I also have an ADHD diagnosis. Um, So there's something different. You never quite know what's going to come through the door, but there's also enough predictability to keep my autistic traits happy too. And that um, kind of almost endless 
level of things to learn, areas to get interested in, um, the portfolio of different things. Every time I think I might be losing interest in one area, there's always going to be something else that I can dig into or get involved in. So that great breadth is just it re- really works really well for me. Um, but each individual is very different. And not everybody who is neurodivergent is going to fit in with general practice, but it does work for a lot of us. Do we have a sense of how many doctors are neurodivergent? We don't even have a sense of how many in the general population are neurodivergent. Yeah. Such information is really quite hard to collate and collect. There was a study in 2017 with Unbiger and et al. and around 1% of GPs at that time self-identified as autistic. Neurodivergence, we estimate around one in six of the population. And given that in 2017, the 1% of GPs mirrored the population estimate of prevalence, it wouldn't be unreasonable to suggest that there is at least that. Medicine definitely selects for some of the more neurodivergent traits, so it's possibly a lot higher. Catherine, did you get any sense in that work you were doing in Derbyshire about the numbers of people in your local area that identified as neurodivergent? I think it was difficult to get a good idea of the prevalence. I did a survey of neurodivergent staff and, and distributed that, but I didn't have an awful lot of responses, but the responses that I did have were really... Um, useful and really telling and I think at least a couple of them were talking about how they wouldn't want to disclose that to their colleagues and that there's still a lot of stigma that people don't understand neurodivergence in general and what the diagnosis means and there's a lot of misconceptions about that so I feel like potentially there were a lot more people who maybe didn't respond to that. Is that still the case, even though we're talking about people in the medical profession here? There's still a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be neurodivergent among doctors. Possibly it's even worse in the medical profession than in the general population who might be a bit more understanding from sort of observing people with these diagnoses from the outside. I think if you look at the, the DSM classification for ADHD and the, the name ADHD, the name ASD, um, all of those things and look at the diagnostic criteria it's all very negative language it's all very pathologizing there's no kind of recognition that this is potentially part of someone's identity and that actually we shouldn't just be observing negative behavior and labeling it we should be looking at that whole person and looking at their strengths as well as any difficulties that they're having. Becky you sort of touched on the fact there that it's very individual to each person and and some of that is potentially about the fact that there's often co-occurrences of different types of neurodiversity in people is how can that manifest itself what sort of challenges does that bring so neurodivergence is often um, classically seen as what we call a spiky profile so in, in the neurotypical individual you'd expect each skill to be at the roughly the same level so language skills social skills mathematical skills spatial awareness all of those to be at a roughly the same level but in a neurodivergent individual there may be huge strengths in one area um, and then much weaker in other areas so for example dyslexia there may be weaker written language and, and reading language skills but really really great 3d modeling Autism can be more tricky, you know, classically from the pathology model, it's deficits in um, social communication. But actually, when we look into that in more detail, it's difficulties in communication between a neurotypical and a neurodivergent. Often the autistic actually um, can communicate really well with another autistic and neurodivergent individuals tend to cluster because their communication style is very similar. That's exactly as Catherine was saying. 
that can be the difficulty is that the assumption is there are communication difficulties, therefore you couldn't possibly be a doctor. But that is the pathology model that is still sadly very much the way medicine is being taught. And it is the medical model. We're always looking for the pathology in something that's that is illness. And it's that gentle pushback that is neurodivergence illness. It's difference, not deficit. And that pushback is coming, taking its time to work its way through as things often do in medicine. What sort of challenges do neurodivergent doctors face? A lot of, I think, what they face is, is the assumptions uh, and therefore the, the stigma. For example, dyslexic doctors and medical students, there can be this assumption, oh, you can't possibly be a safe doctor, you can't prescribe safely. And we've got plenty of literature uh, debunking that. Um, Seb Shaw, who is the research lead within Autistic Doctors International, also dyslexic, has written brilliantly over this over the last 10 years and lots of publications and lots of data indicating that actually there isn't any evidence that there is a problem or a safety issue there. Um, But those myths still persist. Again, the idea that if there are communication differences, you can't possibly be a doctor, which again is just untrue. We know that autistics are overrepresented in the caring professions because of the level of emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy can be more difficult, which is why conversations with colleagues can be more difficult, not knowing necessarily Oh, is what I've said being considered as uh, as rude, whereas we have a formula from day one of medical school. You learn how to interact with patients. You have it. It's a formula. We do your presenting complaint, your history presenting complaint. We interact. There's just no formula for interacting with colleagues, and that can be more of the challenge. Um, patients are fine. <laughs> colleagues are more difficult. Catherine, what about from your experience? Like you were saying, you've been doing that work in Derbyshire. What kind of problems did you see that neurodivergent doctors and other staff in primary care were experiencing? I think the main things that were highlighted in the survey were relating to executive dysfunction. So um, it's something that's common in all neurodivergent individuals is to have some difficulties with those functions like planning, organisation, prioritisation, and I think that's really come out in, in working memory. That's really come out in those results in that people are putting a lot of effort into managing those problems, which might mean that they are running late in their surgeries because of difficulties with processing information and documenting, and sequencing and writing referral letters. They might come across as disorganized with portfolios, appraisal, those sorts of things can be quite challenging Um particularly with people with ADHD, they can be driven very much by the urgency of a deadline and um, suffer with procrastination. Um, And that obviously gets them into difficulties as well. A lot of the workarounds that people have talked about have been about externalising their working memory and kind of having very intricate, sophisticated systems to keep them organised. And again, this is all going on behind the scenes where you would never see it or notice it in, in a colleague unless you asked, how exactly do you do these things? Which I think is the kind of difficulty in recognising and accommodating individuals is that it's not that obvious to outsiders. We obviously often tend to look at neurodiversity and think about people generally, uh, what people can't do, rather than the fact that there's often lots of traits in people who are neurodivergent that make them really very, very good at, at certain things. Why is it important that we try and change the way we look at neurodiversity so we're looking at it more of that, that positive way? And what do you think could help make people in the medical profession look at it in that way? 
I think there's so many positive things. Um, ADHD, for example, massively more likely to be a creative thinker. Um, huge numbers of ADHD individuals go on to be entrepreneurs. That's what we need for an ever-changing healthcare environment, ever-changing workforce. We need people who can think creatively, think outside the box, challenge the accepted and societal norms. Um, neurodivergent individuals tend to be really accepting of difference, can therefore be much more welcoming and accepting of patients who feel different. Neurodivergent individuals, we are sadly more likely to end up with poorly understood chronic health conditions, but that then means we can relate to patients who have poorly understood chronic health conditions who often sadly have been sidelined or considered the quote unquote heartsing patient. Um, and actually that level of emotional empathy can allow connection on a deeper level. The pattern connecting that can happen can mean that a more rare diagnosis doesn't get missed. So yes, you're still, you hear hoofbeats think horses, but you must always bear in mind that one of those horses might actually be a zebra. And so all of those skills can be really, really valuable as doctors, absolutely. We're talking here a little bit as well about, you know, prejudice and discrimination. We've touched on that a bit. Do you think it, this is a major problem for doctors who are neurodiverse, that they experience prejudice and discrimination? Do you think enough is being done to maybe tackle that at the minute? It's a, an area which, as a trainer as well, I'm a newly qualified um trainer um that I've really been looking at because I think as soon as you start to mention oh this doctor has ADHD this doctor is autistic this doctor is dyslexic it's an immediate sort of negative perception there's you know thoughts like well maybe they're not suited for this profession and you just think this these people have got this far they have been doctors for however many years they have got all through all the hoops up until this point and it's just could you do something just to accommodate them slightly that would allow them to continue and continue to thrive? And, and yes, there will be difficulties potentially, um, but I feel like it's it's something that we can explore with that individual and see is there anything else that we can put in place before completely writing them off after so many years of success and development and, and getting to that stage. You know, senior role models is important. And I think as that starts to become more of an accepted thing to share with people, then it will be more evident what your skills are and the fact that you can succeed um, in general practice in this sort of situation. So, yeah, I think that's really important. What does the law actually say about neurodiversity? Is neurodiversity covered by the Equality Act? So there are very few conditions that are explicitly covered by the um, Equality Act. Um, the two that are explicit are HIV AIDS and cancer. Beyond that, it's more of a kind of broad brushstrokes of it would be expected to be covered by. This is the one time that uh, actually the illness model can be vaguely helpful because autism, ADHD, with them that therefore are considered as um, medical disabilities. They are pervasive, lifelong and um, affect many domains and would be expected to last more than 12 months, then reasonable adjustments would be expected. The difficulty is that the Equality Act never defines what a reasonable adjustment is and never defines to what degree an employer has to assist with that. But it does mean that it would be illegal to discriminate. It is a protected characteristic. So that is definitely the advantage. The difficulty is how to get that across without it then becoming indirect discrimination in some way, shape or form. It's a tricky area to navigate, both from an employee and an employer's perspective. 
You were talking there, Catherine, about lots of people didn't want to disclose the fact that they were neurodivergent. So that would make it difficult for employers to to help or support if people still feel there's so much stigma around it. I think that's why I really focus very much on the awareness raising side of things. Because I just feel like there needs to be a complete change in how you consider neurodivergence as a doctor um, before you can appreciate actually you know it's it's something that can cause difficulties and you don't want to you don't want to minimize those that that disability side of things like you say because it really is a disability for a lot of people but equally there will potentially be strengths um that can be used and also you know it's okay to be an average neurodivergent person as well um who just needs a little bit of extra help we're not saying everyone's geniuses or you know amazing at, at everything but it's yeah just accepting and understanding that they are individuals and that each individual needs their own assessment of their needs and and their own adaptations but I do know you are still eligible for the access to work scheme with the government if you don't have a formal diagnosis because it is based on your need and your difficulties so you can get an assessment with them to look for support um, like funding for um, specialist software and equipment or um, other adaptations that need funding um, can be accessed through that without a diagnosis. Um, but yes, like you say, it's very difficult if you're not feeling comfortable to disclose and discuss the reasons why you're having the difficulties. But I suppose with all of the adaptations that you would consider for a neurodivergent individual, a lot of neurotypical people would benefit from them as well. So it should be something that's available to everyone if you feel like that would help you and help your working life to have an assessment and see whether you might benefit from one of those adaptations. No one is going to be disadvantaged by a neurodivergent friendly environment. If we think about the way that we've been trying to make environments more dementia friendly, for example, they don't disadvantage anybody. Putting things in for the whole organisation can actually improve everybody's well-being and workplace experience, therefore doesn't feel like people are being singled out or getting special treatment. So it can be simple things like just making sure that environments are kept quieter, making sure that where we can, having things that deaden noise, we're not getting so many echoes. All of those things will help. And there are lots of things that will help different groups. So being able to use texting software or online software that doesn't require speech is going to be helpful to certain neurodivergents who may struggle with expressing themselves um, out loud. But it's also going to be helpful to your hard of hearing and deaf populations. We have to be careful not to exclude people on the basis of access to digital software, but being able, say, to drop your prescription request in, in writing in some way, shape or form. And just having all of those available just allows us not to exclude anybody. I saw you speak at the RCGP conference recently and you were talking about the fact um, that it isn't the individual that needs to change, it's really the environment around them. And you were talking about the fact that small changes in workplaces can make a big difference and you touched on some of them there, Becky. But what should practices, like GP practices as employers, be doing on this? Is there anything else they could do to make their workplace more inclusive? I think simple things are attitudes, acceptance across the board, that idea of not meaning that people who are new to the organisation have to earn their way in that. Just accepting that different people communicate in different ways, understanding that not everybody is always going to put as many pleasantries around it. So by being that more open with communication and just accepting all communication styles, we're not discriminating others who may have a more direct communication style because of their culture, their neurodivergence, whatever. The sorts of areas that I was looking at with the results of my survey was the things that were highlighted were looking at the 
environment in general. So um, this, again, for in patient areas and staff areas, looking at, like you say, the lighting, the sound, the signage, how easy it is to get around and find your way around places. All of those things are things to look after. What kind of break areas you've got for staff, all of those things could be considered. Um, thinking about equipment, so dual screens, standing desks, software for dictation, all sorts of things that you could consider that might be helpful. And then looking at the rotors and the scheduling, I know looking at the trainees in my practice, at one point they had a bit of a rolling rotor where some Wednesdays they were in, some Wednesdays they weren't. On week one, it was this, and week two, it was that. And I was thinking, if I had done that as a trainee, I would not have turned up on the right day. It was it looked really complicated. And I thought, actually, for anybody, this would be difficult to manage. And you can see how when problems would occur. So looking at that sort of thing. Um, and then just support, like we say, awareness, having somebody within the practice who might be, say, for example, a neurodiversity lead who you would know, understand, the concept and understands and would be able to explore that with you openly and you knew that you could go to them I think that would be really helpful and same with kind of trainers if you're a trainee having somebody that you know understands your divergence could be really helpful and I think it's important to emphasize these things don't have to cost practices money lots of these are cost neutral or very low cost rotor adjustments aren't going to cost things. And if, if actually it's going to improve well-being, you're in, going to increase productivity. Um, silly little things. Some people prefer to dictate their letters. Some people prefer to type them. From day one, um, my trainer tried to persuade me to dictate letters, but then I end up repeating myself because my train of thought disappears. If I've got it typed out in front of me as I'm going, I can tell whether I've repeated myself. Women are often recognised of being neurodivergent much later on in life than men. Is, is that the case? Absolutely, 100%. Um, this is where I'm in danger of getting on a hobby horse, so do stop me. <laughs> classically, let's use autism as this example, it's been classically little middle-class white boys. And that's just like many of the areas in medicine due to the implicit research bias, because that is the group that is being researched. Therefore, that is the group that the diagnostic criteria are built around. So Asperger working in 1940s Germany, Kanna in the 50s in America – both in relatively affluent white populations. That has been where it's been centred around, and therefore the diagnostic criteria have often been more male-centric. There also seems to be that girls are better at masking and therefore may not be so explicit in some of their traits, may internalise more of their traits, but they will still be there and still experience difficulties. And then a degree of misogynism. Um, that means that if it's not understood, it gets labelled as a personality disorder, which is one of my pet hates. If you look at the traits, for example, between emotionally unstable personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, compare that with the traits of autism, they're really very similar. But one gets diagnosed if you're a boy, and one gets diagnosed if you're a girl. And the number one misdiagnosis for many girls and women will be EUPD, BPD, which is really really unfair because of how stigmatizing that is as a condition and then not getting the access to the the support that is then needed so yes many women and girls often later diagnosed and often only once they've sadly encountered mental health difficulties well that's something for gps to be aware of as gps as well as employers as we've been kind of talking about today is the more research now going on into neurodivergence and diagnosing neurodivergent conditions? As part of my um, fellowship, I signed up to get Google alerts about 
you know, new research on Google Scholar with these keywords. And there's more and more things coming up about specifically female presentations and, and how these conditions present in women. And obviously, you know, links between um, gender in, in general, so non-binary individuals. There's, there's all sorts going on, I think. So that's always a positive. There's probably a whole podcast to be done just on that. I mean, that's why we kind of had to focus very much on, on, on it within the medical profession. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, if there are GPs or, or anyone else, actually, uh, who works in general practice listening to this, who feel that they do need um, changes to be made or to, to even tell their employer that they think they might be or are neurodivergent, what advice would you give them? I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it depends how well you know everybody, how comfortable you are. I think, um, you know, I've only really recently started talking to the practice about it. I said, you know, I'm talking a lot about this to other people, but I haven't really said anything to you because I feel like everything is well suited to me and I don't really need any changes at the moment. I know that I could come to you if I did need a change. And actually all the things that I have changed over the years, I've just asked because I said this would be easier for me if we could do this. And actually I didn't need to share anything or a reason why, even if I didn't know what that reason was. Um, So I think, you know, it's not essential that you have to disclose that sort of thing but equally if you can and you can explain the reasons why I think it's worth doing one of the reasons why I wanted to write an article for um, the innovate the RCGP GP trainees um, journal was to do just a summary of what neurodivergence in doctors and neurodivergence in general practice um, you know is about so they could just hand that to somebody and say look just read this first and then you might understand me a little bit better so you know there's that sort of resource out there if people want to ask their supervisors or employers to read it and just get a yeah a better update of what's going on before they have that conversation. Becky would you have any advice for people? A lot of it often happens organically as well when people are like oh what reasonable adjustments have worked for you it can be quite hard to scale back because you're like I've just kind of meandered through and gradually things have come through. It will really depend exactly, as Catherine said, on how long you've been at a practice, whether you're coming in new. I've been very fortunate. I stay at the same practice that I trained at. A number of the partners certainly display some neurodivergent traits, shall we say. It's been an (laughs) adaptation and I think actually a learning journey for all of us um, about the different ways we interact. It's a very friendly practice, so it's been fairly easy to kind of negotiate and say um oh could we do this could we do that and i think that is one of the joys particularly of general practice is that it's a small business and therefore there is that bit more flexibility you're not going through layers and layers of nhs hierarchy if you need to change something if you need to buy a small piece of equipment you know something as simple as a, a clock for example you don't have to you know go to procurement and get that you're like oh well let's just go on amazon and order a clock that can be a really simple thing because lots of us have time blindness and have no idea about the passage of time. So just a clock that's slightly bigger than the tiny one in the corner of your screen, just to keep an eye on, make sure you're not running over. Really, really helpful. Simple things like that. You always took the words out of my mouth about the fact like general practice being being like the, often like smaller organisations. So when you make and also that when you make those changes, like you say, they benefit everybody. So everybody can see that, that it's a positive thing to do. If there are people listening who think they might be neurodiverse but but haven't been officially diagnosed with anything, what, what advice would you give them? We're not going to get anywhere unless people start being open about this. And, you know, I don't even know if I have, a, you know, I'll be diagnosed yet and I'm still talking about it because I recognise my brain, I recognise how 
it works. And actually, even if I don't get a diagnosis, it's not going to change the way that I'm approaching this. It will be a case of, I recognize these difficulties, I will try to keep adapting to them. It doesn't really change the situation. We can all talk about it freely and um, help each other just to achieve our potential. Because I think that is the a huge thing for neurodivergent people is that actually you might be still, you might be very successful, you might be doing well, but you might not be achieving your full potential without that extra little help. And I think that's really important for self-esteem. Don't be afraid of getting a diagnosis and don't be afraid of self-diagnosing. Most people who will be listening to this will be healthcare professionals, but I still say it to my patients too, that self-diagnosis is valid if it means that you understand yourself better and therefore know how to advocate for yourself and can look at the sources of support around you. If though it's causing considerable difficulties, and um, particularly if you're a trainee who is struggling in some way, shape or form, there are various ways of accessing that. Um, The different professional support units have different ways that they're allowing this. So some will fund a private assessment, some won't, um, but it's always worth exploring. There are coaching courses that might help. Again, that you you don't need a diagnosis uh, to to access the professional support unit, um, and you know the worst can happen is that there isn't the right course for you. But if you don't ask, you don't get. Have a look, see what's around, uh, reach out, message somebody who has spoken about this sort of thing. Um, hopefully, speak for Catherine as well. We're always happy to receive emails and um, have people ask for advice. We may not be the best person, but we can usually find someone to sign and post you on to. There's networks of doctors and healthcare professionals on social media, like, for example, on Facebook. And, um, you know, there there are ways of finding other neurodivergent doctors. So, again, I'd say if you think that that applies to you and you want to speak to someone and talk it through. So we actually, as part of the talk we gave at the RCGP, did um, set up a link tree that has a variety of different sources of support. And I think practitioner health um, are getting a lot more aware of neurodivergence in doctors in terms of people who are struggling with mental health issues and burnout. So again, um, it's yeah worth speaking to them if that's something that is um, affecting you. That's really great. That's really useful advice. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Catherine and Becky for taking the time to talk to me. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about giving us a review or a rating. I'll be back next week for our regular news review. So please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting primary care and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 